Hello and welcome to another episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is David Emmett and with me is, uh, back from his tour of the Far East, uh, Neil Morrison. Hello, Neil. Hi, David. How are you doing? Not so bad. How's the jet lag? It's all right. It's a cruel mistress, is the jet lag. But um, five days I've been home and it's, it's getting to a manageable state now. All right, uh, you're not I, sort of waking up at um, some insane time in the morning? Yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. And I'm, I'd say I'm only a vegetable for about 50% of the day now, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, 95, which was the case earlier in the week. So. Right, so approaching, <laughs> approaching normal levels. <laughs> exactly. Normally it's a 40% sort of. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. I wish, I wish I could get up that high. <laughs> um, it's been a fantastic uh, few races, though the uh, the entire the entire trip abroad. You didn't go to uh, Japan, of course. You only went to uh, Australia and um, uh, Sepang. And I suppose sitting at home watching uh, sitting at home or watching Japan, you would think, "Oh my God, I've missed the best race of the flyaways." <laughs> but as it turned out, um, there was uh, a couple more pretty decent races as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was uh, it was a fantastic series of races, and um, you know it's quite an exhausting sort of three weekends uh, with changing locations, the jet lag, all that sort of stuff, you know. But um, thankfully, the race was absolutely top drawer um, on all occasions, and um, you know it feels that it's been a, a superb season uh, in MotoGP, and it feels that you know it's going to get the ending it deserves. You know, I think the fact that it's been so varied and so interesting uh, and so unpredictable, um, you know, it would have been a little bit disappointing if, if you know, Mark had wrapped it up in uh, in, in Australia or in, in Sepang. So, um, yeah, the 18th time that, uh, that the Premier Class has gone to the final race. And I think, you know, it's it's going to take something extraordinary for, for Mark to to, to, to lose it really um, but uh, but it's great that we're we're going to Valencia still with one championship to play yes um, it is extremely unlikely that Mark Marquez will not uh, score I think fifth um, if he finishes fifth then the championship is his and uh, Dovi Chioso has to win and if he doesn't win then the championship's over uh, because Mark is leading by 21 points um, but it doesn't really matter I mean that's uh, uh, you know anything can happen that's as Nicky Hayden always says that's why we line up on Sunday you never know what's going to happen and stranger things have happened at the final race so uh, it, it's good for it to happen we'll start off talking about the championship for a moment obviously it's still all to play Mark versus uh, Mark versus Andrea uh, Marquez versus Dovi um, we left Aragon with Mark leading Dovicioso by 16 points after winning at um, uh, uh, winning at Aragon they head to Japan and we have an absolutely fantastic battle which comes down to uh, the very last lap um, and a an insane attempt to pass in the last corner. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, Dovi getting five points back. Uh, we go to Australia. We have a fantastic, absolutely thrilling race. One of the best races we've seen in a long time. We've seen a lot of good races uh, recently. Um, and then we go to... Uh, Sepang and um, we see another battle between two teammates and Dovicioso gets a few more points back it's uh, the, it's been real back and forth yeah I think we've seen Dovicioso ride probably the, the best race he's ever going to ride in his life um, the, the, the race he or the display put in in Japan was sensational nothing short of sensational um, and that was just fantastic you know both of the guys head to head going into the final lap um, Marquez really doing everything he could to, to break Dovi and it wasn't just the first time he had done that 
it was maybe the, you know, when he went on the final lap and was trying to break clear, I think he had already tried maybe two or three times to break him. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Dolphy just held firm and, uh, you know, and kind of kept his head and just uh, wrote a, almost a clever last lap than the Mark did. And it was just something really sensational to see. I, I didn't think he had that performance in him, um, considering Mark's speed across the weekend in the wet. And, uh, you know, that was just, that was something insane. And then, you know, it, you really have the the extreme contrast of that where the Vizioso then makes the, the big mistake in the second lap of the Australian Grand Prix. Um, and, you know, that'll, I'm sure that'll haunt him and that has been haunting him. And you could see it even in his face in the press conference at Sepang after he'd won there. You know, he said he wasn't feeling that normal kind of, uh, you know, euphoria that you get after a race when he was, because he knew that basically the, the championship, although he maintained his hopes, it was going to be a big ask. And, and, you know, part of that is because of uh, of just how disastrous uh, Philip Island was for for all of Ducati. Do you think it was that uh, that mistake on lap two where he ran wide at turn one, or do you think it was more just a complete lack of pace? Because you know, say he doesn't make the mistake at lap two, where does he? You know, where does he finish? Yeah, sure. No, it's it's you know, it's definitely more to do with the, the lack of pace and 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 you know the Ducati's weakness really being. Um, being magnified for everyone to see um but uh, but you know i think without that mistake he could have possibly finished ahead of the ktms um definitely ahead of redding and pedroza um maybe up with alex rins who kind of started to fade away uh, in eighth place at the end of that the end of that race so we're, we're talking maybe you know six seven points he could have he could have gained which you know is the difference between having to having to win at valencia and having to finish third if mark if mark falls off or has a, a bike issue you know um so yeah but I, I i agree with you it's definitely more down to a lack of pace to carry we're just nowhere all weekend and uh you know david was the only guy in q2 um you know okay reading finished ahead of him but only just and even then i think reading was 11th out of the, yeah. out of the top 10 so uh you yeah, know so that was a, a really bleak day for uh for the guys from bologna yeah uh, did any of the gk riders have an explanation for why they were so bad there uh turning yeah just turning i mean that was what david was saying just the long corners, basically. Yeah, the long corners. Um, long, fast corners. Yeah, long, fast corners on the side of the bike and then having to, you know, make the kind of switch, you know, between turns one and two, I guess. That's, that's you know, key area or between seven and eight, you know, um, yeah. coming out of Siberia into the hay shed, you know, it just wasn't as manoeuvrable and they were just losing tents there. Um, and then David also said in turn, he was trying to use the throttle to steer to kind of alter his uh, his turning and then he was just burning up the tires um, and I think that's basically what his issue was in the final lap there he just had no traction coming out of the final corner whatsoever he said it was embarrassing um, you know Redding and, and Pedroza just kind of eased by him um, so yeah so you know the warning signs were there whenever Ducati went to um, to Phillip Island in February for the, the preseason test um, and you know Davizioso and Lorenzo really looked agitated all that test you know they were not happy um, but I think it was even a surprise to see just how much they had struggled uh, in Phillip Island you know because I think that's one of the, it's been one of their worst weekends at, uh, at Phillip Island for, for a long time I don't think they were anywhere near as bad last time yeah Davizioso finished fourth last year you know yeah yeah, yeah, yeah it, it, exactly so you, it makes you wonder what, what you know what changed on the bike or perhaps it was just the change to the tyres yeah 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, change to the track uh, to the tires, change of uh, of track conditions. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a difficult one to explain, really. Um, but you know, Davizio was always in no doubt that that was the that was the reality. He kept saying that on Sunday evening. Yeah. Um, you know, he had been quite fast on on uh, on Friday, but that was partly down to him getting lucky with toes, um, with his own very aggressive approach and attacking the weekend. You know, trying to continue that yeah. sort of momentum. Exactly, because he looked. I mean, things looked really good on uh, uh, on Friday. I think he was in a he was in decent shape after uh, uh, after the first day of practice. But it all sort of you know went went to pieces on Saturday, and then even worse Sunday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he, he looked so calm on Friday as well. I remember um, commenting to a guy, to our colleague Peter McLaren, that that we work with, just how how relaxed of it he was. He was reveling in it, um, and uh, you know, his, his, in his dealings with the media, they were kind of upbeat, fun. You know, he's cracking jokes. It was lighthearted. You know, there was absolutely no sign of stream whatsoever. And then, you know, he had that crash in FP4 when he was breaking down from yeah. Lucky Heights. And then, it, it, yeah, as you said, it just kind of all like gradually fell apart from there. Um, so, yeah. So you, you kind of feel if, if Davizioso was able to even just take part in that fight at the front, you know, yeah. and maybe and maybe like steal a top six, um, you know, it would have been that would have been a bit of a difference from what eventually happened. Um, and, and, you know, we could be going to Valencia with, say, a 15-point deficit rather than a 21-point uh, deficit. Speaking of Ducatis, we heard from Scott Redding that uh, uh, he'd been told to let Dovicioso pass by, via a dashboard message at Phillip Island. And then there was that mysterious suggested mapping, mapping eight on uh, on Lorenzo's uh, dashboard. Of course, then, I mean, rendered completely moot by the fact that um, uh, Lorenzo completely lost the front and had to save the thing on his knee uh, just to get it around the final corner. But did, did, I mean, how much difference did, uh, did, did those sort of team orders make to Dovicioso's chances? Would we still be talking about the championship being over if, if Ducati hadn't given Dovi a helping hand? Uh, well, I don't think they made too much difference to Philip Island because Scott Redding just ignored them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, at, at Malaysia, and yeah, it is interesting. It is interesting to wonder. Um, yeah, there's, there seems to be a bit of confusion because Lorenzo sort of, you know, I don't think he did himself any favours by trying to make it all mysterious. He said that he didn't actually see that that message appear on his uh, on his dashboard. Um, and when you consider, you know, the length of the two, the back straight and the front straight, it's a pang, and you're on a, you know, you're on a bike, you're obviously going to be looking at your dashboard when you're tucked in, looking straight ahead, you know. Mm. So I think that's, um, first of all, you know, that's probably untrue uh, that, that he didn't see that. But, um, but, but it, the, the, the thing is, though, it came up off the top of my head. It, it appeared, uh, the message appeared, I think, uh, as he was coming out of turn three. Right. And so it's, uh, and it was, uh, I think one of the Spanish journalists, uh, Mela Cercoles, wrote that it was on his dash for 35 seconds. Oh, really? Um, okay. Uh, um, now, 35 seconds from sort of turn three is, it's a very busy section of the track. So sure. maybe, um, maybe he didn't see it. Okay, fair enough. But, you know. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, there is a short straight down to turn turn nine. Yeah, uh, you know the so, hairpin. Yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe, so maybe it did. I actually went and uh, looked for the onboard footage, but unfortunately, there wasn't any onboard footage of Lorenzo's bike. There was only it was 
uh, on the MotoGP.com website where you can actually watch the race from uh, from on board. There was Dovi and there was, uh, I think, uh, Valentino, Mark and uh, Maverick are, were, 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 were the four onboard shots. So yeah. you can't actually see whether um, whether Lorenzo's looking at his dashboard or not because that would have sort of tipped, yeah, uh, sure. tipped, his, uh, tipped his hand. But I'm, uh, I'm sure someone... Uh, someone in Dorda must must have that footage. <laughs> Conspiracy. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah well, because the uh, the obviously the Spanish uh, journalists were all completely convinced that um, uh, it was a it was a stitch up. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, we spoke to someone. We spoke to David Tordozzi, um after the race, and he admitted that you know they had had a meeting with both Davizioso and Lorenzo um, before the race, uh, just to make. Lorenzo completely aware of the situation and to make him aware of who he's riding for um, and he also said you know that okay Davizioso was fighting for the championship this year but we could maybe be in a situation next year where yeah. you're reliant on Davizioso for some help so you know do the do the correct thing and I think you could tell from you know Gigi Delaney's reaction in Park Fermi you know he really embraced Lorenzo warmly that was kind of a, a hug of relief you know almost that he was just saying we weren't sure you were going to do it, but, you know, thanks anyway. Um, and I don't know, it's it's difficult to say because I think Davizioso was faster over the weekend, um, around Sepang, in the rain than Lorenzo. Yeah. But but when you just, when you add in what's on the line, uh, the fact that, you know, he's playing for a championship, you could you could tell that Davizioso was perhaps a little bit nervous. Um, and, and, you know, Lorenzo was incredibly competitive. Um, would he have let him through? If uh, you know, if he hadn't had that big front end moment at the final corner, and uh, that's that's something that I've been trying to think. I'm pretty sure he would have done because the Ducati guys have have spelled it out that you know they made it clear what was yeah, it, what um, was on it, the line. It, I mean, to me, if it was if it was really um, uh, if it was really a question of team orders, then what uh, Lorenzo would have done would have would have you know taken it almost to the line and then made it a, sure. a really big obvious statement saying look i could have won this but i'm going to let my teammate through exactly um, exactly but, but one thing though i think what this does uh, speak of is that it's a sign that lorenzo really believes that he can win with this bike because he is you know he's prepared to sacrifice uh, he's prepared to sacrifice a win at spang uh, because he knows that okay, yeah, we're at the point where I think I can be competitive. There are wins coming. So um, whereas if it had been like okay, this is the only chance I'm going to get to to win with this bike and um, do what Valentino couldn't, because that is to an extent what um, actually drives him. I think he would have had sort of second thoughts about it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, consider what Ducati are paying him. Consider that his yeah. performances haven't always been fantastic this year. Yeah. Um, you know, it would have been a pretty big slap in the face for the factory, you know, yeah. just to deny Davizioso that opportunity. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, know, exactly. And, and th th that's the other thing. I mean, like everyone knows, uh, everyone knows the score. Everyone knows who they're riding for. And uh, yeah, I mean, a, a, a championship really is a lot more, uh, a lot more important than a, uh, than a first win, no matter, uh, no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, well, I mean, that was that's the Ducati sub. We have to turn to Mark because, I mean, we've been talking about Dovi a lot, but, uh, I mean, Mark's performances have been just absolutely outstanding. Yeah, they have, absolutely. Um, he was, you know, pretty, it was a dominant weekend in Mateki bar the race. Um, and, 
you look at what the other Hondas were doing uh, at Mategi and you, you really start to understand just how well Mark was riding because, you know, you've got guys like Cal, Jack, who are specialists in the rain. Obviously, Jack wasn't racing at Mategi, but, you know, Cal had a really difficult time of it. Pedroza, I think, was ninth before he retired yeah. towards the end and he was the next best Honda. Um, you know, it was Mark that was making the difference there. Um, and, and again, on, on Sunday, really, you know. Um, yeah. and, and he even admitted on, on Friday at Sepang that, that this year's Honda the, the 17 uh, RC 213V is not that, you know, he doesn't feel that comfortable on it and he's just having to push a lot harder and yeah. it's almost as if he's prepared to push a lot harder um, than the rest to, to, to kind of get those results. Um, you, you heard uh, what Cal Crutzlow said on, on, on Sunday at, at Sepang, you know, he had no rear grip, he had a really bad feeling and he said he just kind of rode round, he just accepted, you know, and, and Mark yeah. obviously can't, can't quite do that. He's out there pushing us. Uh, as hard as as possible, really. Um, yeah. So yeah. So Mark was, you know, in Japan he was great. Although he was beaten by Davizio, so it was still a, a fine performance. Then he, it was just majestic what he did at Phillip Island. To, yeah. Yeah. To, to kind of sit back and, uh, and 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 allow all that stuff to go on around him, even yes. though it was pretty scary and pretty frenetic. Yeah. Uh, you know, with Zarco, Ianone in there. I mean, a couple of loose cannons, a couple of guys that maybe you're not sure what they're going to do. Um. But he controlled that just so brilliantly. And, uh, you know, I think he said afterwards that he was just managing Davizioso. He was coming out of turn four, the, you know, the Honda hairpin. And he was kind of, you know, judging where Davizioso was coming around turn three. And uh, when he saw that Davizioso really had no chance of scoring the big points, he said, right, okay, now it's the time to attack. It was maybe like five or six laps from the end. And, uh, you know, he just he put some time into into the, the group behind him. Um, but yeah, you'd have to put that up there with, you know, some of his, his best wins because it was just, it, you know, considering what was on the line uh, the fact that he kept so cool, um, it was it was something really worthy of praise. Um, and I think Sepang was, through the weekend, it, you know, wasn't Mark at his very best. You could tell that he was just a little bit preoccupied with, uh, you know, with managing the championship, which is completely fair. But when you consider that from the summer break, pretty much every session he's been relentlessly competitive, you know, in all conditions, if that's like wet, dry, um, in mixed conditions even, you know, he's usually one of the guys right at the front. And Sepang was the first time in quite some quite some time that he hasn't quite been that, you know, swashbuckling. Um, you could see there was a few sessions where he was struggling. He went in the wrong way of setup on the Saturday. He crashed in qualifying, um, had that huge front end moment in, in FP4. And you could just tell that, you know, he said himself on Saturday, I think, uh, you know, sometimes you have to attack and other weekends, you know, you're going to have to defend. And that was one that he had sort of earmarked as a, as a defensive weekend. Um, and even still, it was a defensive weekend. He came out with fourth, you know, um, which isn't, you know, which isn't disastrous by any means. So, but, yeah, so, so so Mark's been, yeah, riding fantastically well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think, I mean, to an extent... His result at Sepang is the it, it's like the tail of the championship, if you like, uh, because the big difference between Dovi and uh, and Marquez has been that uh, Marquez, I think his worst finish has been sixth. Um, uh, he's had you know two two crashed ENFs and then the engine go on him, uh, and of course if the engine doesn't go, then we're not even talking about the championship. Sure. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean this is um, uh, the, the Sepang is exactly the kind of performance that he has had to put in to actually win a championship, which is to take what's on the table, just 
calm down, uh, stay calm, uh, take what's available, take the points which are available, and uh, and, and and carry on. Which, um, uh, yeah, I mean that's that, that that to me has been quite impressive. Yeah, exactly, and especially when he was measuring up whether to attack Zarko, um, sort of mid-race at Sepang. Uh, Zarko was in third, obviously, and had just been passed by the Ducatis, and Mark was trying to make some inroads in him. And, uh, you know, Zarko sort of responded and, and, and you know, was riding a great race. And, and Mark was sort of doing the championship sums in his head, you know, as he was riding, thinking, well, if I pass him, it's only going to be three points that I gain. And, you know, what's the difference going to Valencia with 24-point gap as opposed to a 21-point gap? It's, it's more or less the same, you know. And, you know, that, that, was, that was another sign of, uh, you know, of that ability to calculate while he's riding um, the kind of maturity and um, you know maybe that is not something we would have seen in say 2014 um, and you know if, if if the championship had been decided you know it's, we definitely wouldn't have seen that approach from him I don't think you know he would have just went hell for leather yeah exactly um, yes yeah but yeah I mean it's uh, he's I think he's been the Davizios has been sensationally sensationally strong this year and he's been you know in some ways the revelation um, but I think you know we can say that Mark is uh, is the best rider right there at the moment, and maybe by some distance. Uh, yeah, yes, exactly. Especially when you start comparing it to uh, what his uh, sort of you know what his stable mates are are on, what other riders on Hondas are, are performing. You know, they have they have good days and they have bad days. But uh, Marquez is um, uh, only well, he he has sort of you know fantastic days and and decent days, which is which has been the difference in the championship. Yeah, definitely. Right, well, we shall uh, take a quick break, and uh, then after that, we shall uh, go through the other manufacturers uh, and how they fared while they were overseas. Hey guys, Jensen here. Just a quick message to make sure you're following the show on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. All right, now back to the show. And uh, welcome back. Well, that was the fight for the championship, but there was plenty of intrigue further back in the field. Um, I mean, you know, Honda were up and down. Uh, Ducati were up and down th- during the flyaways. Uh, same was true for Yamaha. You know, um, uh, Valentino Rossi and Maverick Vinales, you know, they were they were positively mediocre at Sepang. They were pretty mediocre at, um, um, uh, in Japan and a brilliant, brilliant race in, in Phillip Island. What, you know... How can we? But then again, we have Joanne Zarco, who was brilliant everywhere. Yeah, it's just been a, a nice little encapsulation of uh, of Yamaha's season, hasn't it? You know, they they have a disaster, and then you think like, oh, it's it's dead and buried. You know, it's written off this season, and then they come back and produce a you know both riders produce a performance like they did in Phillip Island, and all's well with the world again. And then you know they have another disastrous race in in, in Sepang. Um, yeah, and you have you know Valentino Rossi coming out afterwards and saying that the bike is dangerous and impossible to ride uh, in wet in in the rain. Um, so yeah, it's 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 perplexing. Um, it's it's really difficult to explain. You know, I've we've spoken about this so many times. It's just a bike that it, it's clearly a very good bike in let's say most conditions. Yeah, but in certain you know the the window is just that much narrower than it is with uh, you know with well, I don't know, with the Honda and the Ducati, I guess you could say. Um, and it is perplexing to see Zarco 
riding as well as he is, you know, because he was just fantastic in every condition in the flyaways. You know, he was excellent in uh, Mategi in the wet pole position, um, you know, was sensational all week in the Phillip Island and, you know, was great in Sepang as well. And genuinely, you wouldn't have bet him against him challenging for the win uh, if it was a dry race. Um, so I don't know, you know, at the same time, you know, we have to, we kind of have to factor in the fact that Rossi was really competitive at Sepang up until the rain. Yeah. Um, you know, he was, uh, he was fighting for pole position. I think he was fastest in a couple of the free practice sessions. He definitely had the pace to challenge. Um, and it was just the rain that came and, uh, you know, the, the grip on Sunday in, in Malaysia was uh, quite a lot less than it was on the Friday when we had a rain, uh, a wet session as well. Um, and that really caught a lot of people out, not just the Yamahas, you know, you heard Honda riders speaking of the lack of grip. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's perplexing. Um, and I'm sure you've seen, David, that, you know, Yamaha won't have the 2018 bike in Valencia for the, you know, for the, the test. And it, you kind of just get the impression that they still don't really, you know, speaking to some people at, at Phillip Island at Sepang, you get the impression that they still don't know exactly why they're having these issues. Um, you know, the, the sort of overall impression you get is that, you know, they're a bit lost. Um, and they're, they're, they're at a loss indeed to, to explain what, what issues they're having. I have a theory, um, which is that the, I mean, the Michelins work within a very narrow uh, t- uh, sort of temperature range or quite a narrow temperature range, much, much narrower than uh, was the case with the Bridgestones. Because basically in the Bridgestones, everyone was racing with the same tyre. Um, and now you will see in the same race, you'll see uh, people racing with all three, all three fronts and all three rears. Um, uh, so it's just a question of how you how you manage that tire, and you see that with other other manufacturers as well, that the tire works really well for them at one particular in one particular set of conditions, uh, and then I don't know the temperature drops or uh, a little bit of rain falls or the sun comes out, and then all of a sudden they're absolutely nowhere. And it seems that uh, the, the Yamaha in particular, or the, rather the 2018 Yamaha in particular, really seems to suffer with this a lot. And whether that's down the to Yamaha. Or the 17, yes, yeah. beg your pardon, the 2017 Yamaha, it really seems to suffer with this particularly, and whether it's down to chassis or whether it's down to electronics, I mean, it's probably a combination of the uh, uh, of the two, and maybe even, you know, engine character, perhaps they found a little bit more horsepower, uh, but finding the horsepower has made the engine that little bit more aggressive, um, uh, which, uh, which, you know, puts a little bit more temperature in the tyre and, uh, and, and makes it all more difficult for them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, you can kind of see that it must be difficult when you've got two riders that I think have been asking for different things. Um, because at the start of the year, lots of the issues with the Yamaha, according to Rossi, were with the front end. He just didn't have that confidence when he was, you know, turning into the corner. Um, Vinales had spoken, you know, during the off season of how hard they were working to make sure the rear tyre lasted all race. And then, you know, they had those disastrous items in Jerez and Barcelona. They brought a new kind of updated chassis to Germany, I think it was. And in the second half of the season, we've seen them have real issues with what they were strong with or what Vinales was strong with in the first half of the season, which was consistency until the end of the race. Yeah. Um, so you kind of have to think that having two riders that aren't exactly asking for the same things hasn't helped um, and, and has perhaps confused, confused direction somewhat. 
Uh, yeah, and I think um, for a little while, Yamaha weren't certain whose direction to follow, and uh, so they sort of went in two different directions at the same time and ended up, uh, you know, going going nowhere. So yeah. um, because oh. it it feels much more like uh, uh, Honda or well, particularly uh, you know Marquez Honda, uh, Honda and Ducati have made um, bigger progress, while Yamaha has not so much gone backwards as just stood still. Sure, and that's the second year in a row that's ha- that that's happened, um, because you know that 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 really occurred last year as well. Um, we saw that you know Honda made big strides during the season, and, and Yamaha stood still. Um, something that, something really interesting that I heard um, from from someone that had spoken to some technical guys within Yamaha was that when Yamaha had, had Lorenzo, he was so consistent during testing and during free practice and qualifying that if you looked at his um, if you looked at like his electronics kind of graphs you know on the computer yeah you would see the same squiggles for every single lap yeah you know so it was really easy to make changes and to see the difference that they were making yeah. because Lorenzo was such a precise rider. Yeah. You could you, you can see that in his lap times because if you go through yeah. some of his lap times it's you know he's within hundredths of a second every single lap especially like last year and the year before it, it, consistency was amazing so I can I can totally yeah. believe that. Exactly. So with Vinales who we know is a bit more of an aggressive rider especially with the throttle and with how he breaks into the corner you don't have that same you know kind of linear lines on the graph so I think that you know has perhaps contributed somewhat to some of the electronic struggles that they have because Lorenzo was such a good almost like he was like a computer you could send them out and you could see okay so this is the exact difference that this change has made and I don't think there's that same consistency with uh, with Vinales not yet anyway you know and he's still like a young guy so that's not a particular criticism of him it's more just saying how robotic and, and kind of uh, inhuman <laughs> Lorenzo <laughs> is in terms of his precision um, so yeah so there's there's maybe that to consider as well because electronics has been you know a regular sort of criticism in in the second half of the year from both uh, from both Rossi and, and Vinales yeah I mean which is uh, to an extent almost strange because the uh, Yamaha have been using Magneti Morelli electronics for well over a decade I think they've been using them almost from the start uh, ever since they switched from carbs to you know EFI to fuel injection which would have been 2003 Three two thousand four something like that, I think two thousand three. So yeah, it, it 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 is odd. I think also to an extent, it's like a you know working practices. So they're used to having uh, engineers get used to having the baseline. They're used to having uh, they get used to having the the baseline of Lorenzo's uh, sort of consistent laps. He's he's absolutely clockwork lot, uh, laps, um, and so they base their thinking around it. And when someone new turns up and and things aren't working differently it takes a little while to figure out how to how to adapt to that for them as well so but that's you know it's it's always interesting seeing the almost like the organizational side of the um uh, of the series and how that can have a huge impact just you know the the organizational part of um of being competitive yeah absolutely yeah and you know it, it's it would be unfair to to be speaking about yamaha without heaping praise on johan zarko who was just absolutely sensational in each of the three flyaway races um and, and really it, it solidified you know because he had a one or two yeah he's always been consistent but maybe just not as eye-catchingly consistent you know from silverstone through to you know Mizano and, and aragon but he was just back to his absolute best um you know through all three races and he was just 
fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. There's, there's just no way. I mean, he comes and he wins Rookie of the Year. He wins um, a Best Independent Rider of the Year. And he is, uh, let me look, six, six of the championship behind um, uh, a factory Ducati, two factory Yamahas and two factory Hondas. So that's it. I mean, it's just absolutely, absolutely sensational. Yeah. Nothing nothing more you can say about it. And like you say, he had that little bit of a sort of, you know, mid well, uh, mid to late season slump if you like. Uh, but he certainly found he uh, found his uh, his feet again. Uh, yeah. And now there's all this talk about shouldn't um uh, shouldn't he be on the same bike as um uh, Valentino and Maverick and Ma- Valentino and Maverick seem very uh, certain that it would be very bad for poor Joan should he be subje- subjected to <laughs> such a thing. I, I mean it, what I've always been told and um by various people is what happens on uh, at Valencia on Sunday night after a race is they wheel the bikes out of the Yamaha garage and into uh, and into the Tech 3 garage um, uh, and uh, Poncherel's survey Poncherel's relationship with Yamaha is outstanding but it's not the same as um, uh, LCR Honda and it's certainly not the same at, uh, as at Pramac where Pramac is basically a, a subsidiary of the factory mm. um, uh, Poncherel is very much a privateer team um, and he gets he, he gets what the factory gives him so yeah so the indication that that Hervey sort of has given us um, is that from from what it sounds like, you know, he, you know, next year, starting next year, Zarco won't have the bikes that, that Rossi and Vinales are on now. Um, Hervé seems pretty convinced that if they find a, a new chassis that that cures these kind of woes with, you know, say the wet weather or, or certain grip conditions, um, that 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 chassis will will find its way into Tech Three. Um, it's clear that this 2017 chassis isn't competitive enough. Yeah. You know, for for a factory like Yamaha, um, and uh, you know, I, I th- it's always very difficult to explain because I mean, at the bike that Johan's on at the moment, that's had several updates through the year. You know, I mean, maybe that wasn't always the case with with Bradley Smith and Paul Espargaro in the past, but you know, this year we've seen. Uh, I think Folger and, and Zarco said that uh, at the Barcelona test in June, yeah. Yamaha give them like a new updated chassis um, that they that they both tried. I think Folger liked it initially, but then, you know, threw it away after yeah. one or two bad races. It's really difficult to, to keep up with what kind of specs they're on, but I'm pretty sure that if Vinales and Rossi, um, you know, find the uh, 2018 chassis and that's a pang that they really like, that'll probably filter its way down to, uh, to Tech 3 quite soon. Um, and I think Hervé told us in uh, in Phillip Island, you know, a chassis is a bit of aluminium. It's not going to break Yamaha's budget to supply a couple more of them, you know, to its uh, to its satellite team. So, um, so that should be interesting. But do you think that Rossi and, and Vinales and even Yamaha are afraid of what uh, Zarco could do if he was on a competitive bike? Because it's obvious yeah. he's just – the, the boy is quick. Yeah. Yeah, they're wary. Yeah, and we, we've seen all year, you know, Rossi's been getting questions about Zarco coming up to the, you know, the factory team and this and that. And, you know, he's, you can definitely tell that the attention that Zarco has got has irked Rossi, especially yes. when you consider their own on-track history um, from Assen, from Coda, from Phillip Island. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, I, I would say it's a concern. Yeah, I would say it's it's something that they, they wouldn't like. Um, and of course, one of the questions that they were being asked uh, in a few of the recent races was that, you know, Honda have Crutchlow, who's on a factory bike that's quite similar, well, almost, almost not identical, identical yeah. 
but very similar to the factory guys. You know, Ducati have Petrucci, who's on a GP17. Um, you know, would would Yamaha uh, benefit from from Zarco? And you know, Rossi's just batted the, the question away, saying like, oh, you know, it wouldn't be good for him because our bike at the moment isn't very good. You know, but he's he's yet to really give his true opinion. You know, he's kind of joked joked it off. Um, and I think that's a sign that uh, yeah, there's there's a definite wariness uh, when you look at Zarco or when he looks at Zarco. And another interesting thing, you know, a lot of talk um, over in the overseas races was about Yamaha and the possibility of uh, employing a test team, a European-based test team for 2018. Um, now, whether that comes off is another matter, but it does seem that they're interested in um, employing, you know, a, a European rider, yeah, or, uh, like a maybe even like a Michael van der Mark or someone like that. There were rumours that they had approached Piro um, about coming over to, to to work for them in a in a test rider capacity with the promise of you know six wild cards a year and I'm sure quite a lot of money, um, which I think Piro turned down in the end. Um, but you know that is a sign that that Yamaha maybe even Honda the same. There's there's rumours about Stefan Bradl being a you know Honda test rider for 2018. Um, you know there is a feeling that KTM and Ducati are onto something here with how they how they've approached this season um, in terms of gathering data for tyres um, and, and just gathering setup information. You know, when you look at how well KTM performed at Aragon after, you know, Calio's uh, work at a test there, um, then his performance as a wild card. You know, Pero's always, you know, challenged for the top six when he comes to Mugello yeah. or, or Mizano. Um, you know, Nakasuga and Nozani are, are good riders, don't get me wrong, but they're definitely not the level of Pero. No, um, no, 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 exactly. Well, the, I mean, that's the other thing about um, having uh, using like Petrucci and uh, and Crutchlow as uh, uh, as sort of you know like third factory riders, if you like. I know certainly that uh, Petrucci Petrucci just uh, occasionally gets a setup dumped on him, um, yeah. which the factory wants to try out, and it may be absolutely useless for Petrucci, but the factory wants the data, so they send him out and um, and he go rides around on it and sort of tells them what it feels like, and they take the data away, and then they decide whether they're going to give it to Dovi and uh, to Dovi or Lorenzo. So it's yeah. um, um, you know that's that's the downside to it. Sure, sure. And even see, you know, with Petrucci at the start of the year, I think it's a case that Ducati might give him something that they might not even be absolutely 100% sure that the reliability is there. Yeah. Um, but, well, let's just use it on our kind of guinea pig. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, if he breaks down, it isn't absolutely devastating for our championship, whereas it would be for, you know, a Davizio's or a Lorenzo. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's interesting, and it'll be really interesting to see how Yamaha approached that, because you get the feeling, you know, we, we've already mentioned it, these past two seasons, they haven't made progress through the year. Yeah. And, um, you know... I don't think it would do them any harm at all to have a European uh, test rider. There were some rumours that, uh, you know, Sunday, or sorry, the, the Malaysian Grand Prix was, a, you know, a sort of a, almost like a job interview for Michael Vandermark. Yeah. Um, right. For, for, for doing something like that in 2018. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, what Yamaha eventually do. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, mean, it, I think it also uh, makes the case that because the field is getting closer and closer, because certain things have been uh, 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 closing up all the time, it means that you need a much broader base. You need a, you need more and more information just to uh, uh, just to try and find an advantage somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's it's it's. It's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how they uh, how they approach it. Speaking of KTM, um, they had a pretty good they had a pretty good set of flyaways as well. They did, yeah. They had an outstanding weekend in Phillip Island. Absolutely fantastic. Paul Espargaro finished, sorry, qualified sixth, their best ever qualifying performance. Yeah. I think he was fifth in FP4. Yeah. Um, in that crazy session where we saw six different bikes in the top six, the first ever time that apparently that that's happened in MotoGP. Yeah. Um, 
and you know him and Bradley uh, were were very strong in the race, um, you know, fighting for the, the the lower positions in the top ten, um, and that was without you know anyone really retiring or crashing out in front of them. Maybe Alice Espargo crashed out in front of them, but other than that, you know, it was that the, they were the ninth and tenth quickest bikes that day. You know. Um, you know, so yeah, that was that was really impressive, and it, you know, it's been good to see Bradley sort of back on form. He's really looked like his old self since there was confirmation that he's going to be staying uh, in the race squad for 2018. Um, yeah, uh, he qualified well. Um, you know, generally had a good weekend in, in Japan. You know, and then he was fantastic in, at Phillip Island. You know, fought with Paul the whole race, and he just missed out. Yeah, um, definitely more like the Bradley we know from 2015. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, in, in previous uh, in previous races, he was finishing sort of twenty thirty seconds back behind uh, uh, behind Paul, and now he's you know basically more or less on the same pace as Paul and and battling with it. So just uh, it really goes to show how much of racing happens between the years, um, uh, and how much those distractions. Again, I think this is the Dovizioso model. Do you know what I mean? You learn to uh, get rid of distractions, and your performance really really benefits. Um, the that's uh, again I think perhaps that's also what uh, what explains Zarko's success because because Zarko's really good at completely uh, you know shutting out any kind of distraction um, and focusing on just focusing on the job in hand and, and getting really really good results yeah 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 it's been yeah I mean we've we've praised KTM a lot this year quite rightly so yeah um, and uh, you know what they what they did again and um in Phillip Island was was just sensational, you know, and it makes you wonder what they can do next year. You have to imagine they'll be challenged for top six, you know, regularly. Well, I mean, you've got to think that they are basically that Stefan Pereira is um, sending Mark Marquez a text message every day, <laughs> saying, "Come yes. on, you know you want to." Yeah. <laughs> yes, come on, baby. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yes, exactly. Just think of how much money Red Bull has. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think you know we have criticised them a lot this year, and we've criticised their lead rider a lot this year. So it's only right that we 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 throw some praise in Suzuki's direction because they were another factor that seemed reborn uh, in Japan. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and we saw two really really strong races from both the riders. You know, both from uh, Andrea Iannone and Alex Rins. Yeah, exactly. And for a change, Andrea Iannone hasn't just risen to the challenge just because his, uh, his teammate is fast. They've both been genuinely quick, genuinely impressive. Um, yeah. Any theories on what the, you know, where, the, where the turnaround has come from? It, it appears that um, they had a, a test at Aragon after the race at Aragon. I think it was a two-day test. Um, and they were testing a lot of things for 2018, apparently. Um, but According to David Abrivio, you know, the team boss, he said that it was a good chance to go through some parts that they, for this year's bike, that they had tested pr- like previously and had maybe discarded. And it was a really good opportunity just to go back through some old items and to assess them and just to kind of tidy up the setup is, is kind of how he put it. You know, he said there was yeah. nothing revolutionary, but we were able to just go through and tidy up the setup for this year's machine. And he said that basically when they were there, Ian only just managed to find a little bit of confidence again. Um, and he also, what, what he said was interesting, um, testing the 2018 parts, he said, you know, give Ian only the belief again that we can be competitive in the future. Yeah. So, you know, hearing Ian only linked with a pretty earlier in the year, it was almost as if, you know, he'd given up on the, on yeah. the Suzuki thing, you yeah. know. And I think the fact that they've tested like 2018 bits and bobs that were good 
has given it, you know, the impression that, okay, let's try and work up to next year because with what I tested, I'm pretty sure that we can be a lot better than what we were this year. So that just seemed to give him a little bit, you know, it kind of uh, lit his uh, his motivation again um, and, and his belief that, that, you know, Suzuki will be a worthwhile uh, project to stick with for 2018. And, um, you know, it was great to see because in, in Japan, I think Rin spent a lot of the race ahead of him. Yeah. And he fought, you know, he properly went at it and you know I think he put a tough move on Rins which was which was a fair move yeah. it was a tough one um, and you could see that he was really he was really fighting for it again and, uh, and that's just not something that we've seen uh, a lot this year and, and he was fantastic in uh, Philip Pilot I mean he was yeah. I mean he was dangerous as all hell but um, uh, he was still just absolutely fantastic and a joy to watch again at, uh, yeah. at Philip Island it's clearly it's clearly a track that he loves and he's good at sure and it's it's you know one of the reasons why it's been so frustrating this year because we know that he is he when he's on form and he's he's in that yeah. kind of mood he's just sensational to watch you know I don't think there are many other riders that are as entertaining as Ian only when he's kind yeah. of up for a fight and scrapping at the front and you know getting his elbows out um, and he was he was magnificent there he was absolutely superb yeah. Um, so yeah so so something finally positive for Suzuki yeah, after exactly. you know, what has been a really difficult year exactly do you, do you think it also helps the fact that you know Rince is finally healthy he's finally get, getting a little bit of experience and he's starting to um, uh, just basic you know manage to keep it all together and uh, and actually race whereas at the start of the year season he was he you know he was a rookie he was hurt he was beat up he just never really got a chance to actually get some some sort of miles under the wheels yeah absolutely yeah I think having two two guys there able to challenge one another is is, is pretty vital. I mean, we saw how he only rose to the challenge in Mategi. Uh, you know, Rins was almost like that carrot being dangled in front of him. Um, and, uh, you know, Rins is a good rider, definitely. And I think having him back, having two guys that are competitive, more experienced now as well, um, you know, it, it sounds obvious, but two riders... What Suzuki were also keen to stress was, you know, uh, it wasn't just Iannone that was new. It was Marco Rigamonti, his yeah. crew chief, was completely new to the bike. And that has taken a lot of time to kind of get up to speed. So, yeah, it's just everything's kind of coming together a bit. Um, and, uh, yeah, and for the first time, that actually looked like a, a sorted bike in the wet. You know, that's the first time really since Suzuki's come back to the, 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 the MotoGP class in well, the start of 2015, end of 2014. Yeah. They've, they've been rubbish, really, for want of a better phrase, in the rain. And Mateki was, uh, was evidence that, that they've found something there. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Um Aprilia too. Um, Aprilia seems to be going from strength to strength as well, but uh, with well, at least with uh, Alicia Spargaro until he fell off and hurt himself. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Um, hurt his left hand. I think it was in that crash at Turn One at Phillip Island. Yeah. Um, and that was a real shame because Spargaro had shown all weekend that he, you know, had the pace to be in that fight for you know for first, which eventually turned yeah. out to be second. Um, yeah, real shame because Aprilia, it's just the story of their season really, isn't it? You know, they've had great potential so often and uh, it's just gone a bit unfulfilled. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, Alish wasn't there in Sepang. Um, Samuel was their, was their only rider. Um, yeah, and just hearing, you know, some stories, you know, it just seems that the team really has given up on, on Sam, you know, yeah. since it was announced that he's not going to be there um, or since it was confirmed that he's not going to be there in 2018. Yeah, it, it it is it's quite sad and, and and quite dispiriting when you hear one or two stories about. It's just clear that they don't believe in him at all, 
and uh, and I yeah. think that that's just rubbed off and you can you can kind of see it in Sam's performances um, a really disappointing end to, to something you know a relationship that promised a lot yeah exactly because I mean it, it certainly felt like uh, or from the outside it looked like uh, Sam Lowe's was was Fausto Grassini's rider and not um, and not Aprilia's rider and Aprilia have basically treated him like a second class citizen sort of like throughout so I mean the thing is we don't even know whether um, uh, whether Sam is going to be a, a decent MotoGP rider or not because he's you know we, we haven't had a chance to actually sort of see what he's made of just because yeah. he's 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 always been on a an, on an inferior bike and and he's he's you know been the redheaded step child of the uh, of the Aprilia operation yeah and I'm sure you know anyone that's been in a job where their boss doesn't believe in them yeah has belittled them uh, doesn't communicate with them you know I'm sure you can relate that that's not an easy sort of environment to operate in no no, um, no exactly you know especially if you're an Englishman for example in a largely Italian team yeah you, you, um, so yeah so that, that's been that's been disappointing really yeah. um yeah for sure Right, well, we should take another break, and then when we come back, we will have a little chat about uh, Moto2 and Moto3, where we have some champions, and then we shall go through our winners and losers. David Emmett here. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this show on iTunes please remember to leave us a review and rate us as it really helps other fans find the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, welcome back. Um, finally, Moto2, Moto3. Um, first of all, Moto2, we have a champion, Franco Morbidelli, who I think it is safe to say completely deserves um, uh, the championship, even though Tom Luti uh, put up a very, very stout defence. Uh, my, I think my abiding memory or thought about the flyaways in Moto2 is the fact that um, Morbidelli had he had such a stinker of it in um, uh, in Japan. He did, but at the same time, you felt that he was kind of riding. You know, he was matching what Luti was doing. Yeah. Um, and and that probably should have been a race that Luti excelled in, but he just he didn't. Um, he had issues with visibility, and and I, I kind of feel that at that point, Franco was just thinking, you know what? Uh, if I gain points on Luti in these conditions, then that's absolutely fine by me. You know, he was very much in that kind of defensive frame of mind. Um, but yeah, I think overall we have to say he's absolutely deserving winner. Uh, Ludi put up mainly a spirited defence. It did fall away a little bit. Um, you know, we we kind of had expected those three flyaway races to be where he would come really strong um, and maybe take it all the way to the wire. But you know, he uh, he had that bad race in um, in Japan. He beat himself up something shocking in uh, in Phillip Island and in, in the warm up. Yeah, especially uh, so had that big egg beater of a crash at uh, Lucky High. Uh, sorry, at uh, the Hay Shed. It was yeah. And um, and that's fast. Yeah. That's proper fast. That is. Yeah, exactly. And you know, he got tangled up with the bike. Well, as he, as he was falling yeah. through the gravel trap, and then I don't know if you if you saw even before he had the big the big crash in qualifying at, at Sepang, which which ruled him out of the race and, and gave Morbidelli the championship. You know, he looked like a he looked like a ghost. He didn't look like he was in you know anywhere near peak fitness to be to be riding in in you know the kind of the, the punishing tropical heat. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, so it's a shame that that Ludi fell away so badly, um, but uh, but you know we have to we have to congratulate Franco. Eight wins this year, um, 
and he's been the class act of the field. He's, uh, you know, you look at where he was weak in 2016. It was the kind of the, the last five or six laps of race. He has worked on that. And, you know, that has basically been where he's won a lot of races this year. Yeah, absolutely. I think also um, uh, it, it probably helps a little bit that Alex Marquez upped his game as well because Alex Marquez has been pretty strong um, uh, this year, much certainly much stronger than last year, and has made him actually work for his uh, uh, you know work for the wins, which is definitely very good for uh, definitely very good for Franco. Yeah, um, and I think what's really what, what's been what stood out for me from, from Morbidelli is that yeah, there's been a few mistakes in there and there's been a few bad races, but each time he's come back. And, and made a real statement kind of race or a real statement when he had that, you know, that crash at, at Jerez, uh, you know, wasn't ideal after he'd won the first three races of the year, but he came straight back at Le Mans, won that race brilliantly. He had the crash at Mizano in front of the home crowd, said that, you know, he felt the pressure a little bit, felt nervous on the bike. He came back and had that wonderful ride, um, you know, against Matteo Pessini in Aragon, you know, where he fought with yeah. him all the way to the last lap. So there has been mistakes there, but there's also been a response, you know, which has really underlined that, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a character, he's a fighter. Yes. Um, and yeah, he's, he's a cool guy. He's, you know, really polite. He's, he's quite charismatic in his own laid back, you know, kind of beach boy kind of way, the, you know, that sort of vibe yeah. that he's got going on. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I think he could be a really good MotoGP rider. You know, it's a lot of people haven't fared so well when they've gone up and, um, uh, you know that the, we we know that the Honda isn't necessarily the easiest bike to get on with. No, but um, yeah, I'm really intrigued. That's one of the, the kind of uh, subplots of 2018 that I'm already quite excited about. Yeah, exactly, and certainly, I mean, Morbidelli and Luti in the same team is going to be uh, it's, it's going to be extremely interesting to to, to see how that develops. Um, uh, I have to say, I mean, speaking of we praise KTM in uh, MotoGP, they've been pretty outstanding in moto two uh two double podiums in the in the last two races yeah two one twos um you know Oliveira. it's been a long time coming you know from from pre-season testing it was clear that uh a first win wasn't far away yeah uh, but to see brad binder who has had i think he's had a really good season a really strong uh gutsy kind of season after some awful awful injuries yeah i mean the, the injuries exactly from from what i heard about the injuries i mean he broke his arm in uh i think november last year um uh had that set but the the injury didn't take so the the two parts of the bone didn't uh, didn't heal together and then he broke it again um uh, went again and had another uh, another injury on it um he lost lots and lots of strength in his arm and he wasn't really sort of in any you know shape to be riding until maybe sort of june or july so yeah. you know it's basically been half a season for brad bender yeah um, sure and, and even in that first half of the season where he was horrifically injured he was still scoring top tens oh which, yeah yeah which yeah. i thought was really really impressive i mean he rode with a, a broken arm in argentina for god's sake he yes. raced with, a, with an arm that he broke on the bike yeah. <laughs> uh, during i think it was qualifying yeah um which yeah. i think underlines that, that you've got a quite gritty uh you know, that's quite a formidable uh, mindset that, that Brad's got there. Um, I think he's he's really going to be one to watch next year. Yeah, I mean, are uh, Oliveira and Binder the favourites of 2018 already? Uh, I think so, yeah. I'd put them ahead of Alex Marquez. Uh, I think Sam Lowe's, you yeah. know, if, if everything goes to plan with Sam over pre-season, um, he'll be on the K-team as well. You'll have to factor him in there. Um, guys like Banyaya, I think, has been super impressive this year. Piscini yeah. has been great. Um, but you do have to wonder just, I mean, if KTM are this good in their first season, you do have to wonder, you know, is their bike going to be that much superior next year? Um, yes. 
Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. It, it, it could be. It'll be interesting to see. Um, but I do. I do worry slightly that you know, in two years we're just going to see a class full of KTM chassis. I hope that you know Moto Two's done quite well this year because there's been a little bit of variety back in there yeah. after a few years of just a Calyx, a Calyx Cup essentially. So we we, we kind of hope that. Uh, that, that variety remains but yeah fantastic work from Oliveira um, and from Binder in both of those races at, uh, at, in Australia and in Malaysia you also have to start uh, have to wonder how much uh, the switch to Triumph engines in 2019 has, has sort of taken resources away from uh, Calix for example um, yeah. where I mean Calix is basically just a couple of blokes in a shed almost and so they don't have massive resources to be designing chassis and they've got to work on uh, uh, two different uh, two different chassis at the same time, and the, the, you know the, the chassis won't be vastly different. They just need the dimensions, and um, uh, and then uh, they can start to work on the stiffness. But it's still uh, it's still taking away from the little detail work, which makes all the difference. So um, we shall have to you know see how that plays out. Two thousand eighteen, two thousand and nineteen. Um, now, if Franco Morbidelli was good in Moto2, uh, Shuan Mir has just been, um, as you like to say, absolutely sensational in um, <laughs> in Moto3. I mean, this I a don't class think... Act. It, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, if you look at the strength in that field, if you look at the riders in that field, all of whom are very strong, and Mir has just dominated 10 wins in 17 races is just remarkable. Yeah, yeah. Only one man has won more races in a, a junior uh, category campaign, which was Valentino Rossi in 1997. Um, he won 11 races in that year, and Joanne has the opportunity at Valencia to, to equal that. So that really underlines just how, how dominant Mayer has been. Um, and uh, yeah, he's he's just been the absolute class of the field uh, all year long. Yeah, um, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, to to an extent, sometimes he's, it's almost as if fate has been on his side because, um, for example, Philip Island, the, the, the race gets red flagged um, and the race gets red flagged and they roll back to, uh, the, 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 so they roll the race back one lap and that just happens to be the race, uh, the, the lap on which Mir is, is leading. Yeah, but um, it didn't just happen to be the lap that he was leading because he was he was, he was clearly Yeah, oh yeah, he, absolutely. Yeah, it was the point that we're in the race at which he was... He was constantly trying to pull that field apart. Yeah. It was only a matter of time until, you know, the other guys messed themselves up enough trying to stay in his slipstream to do it. You know, that was a fully merited, yeah, that was a fully merited win, I think. Oh, yes, exactly. I mean, you know, it was but it's one of those wins that fate could have taken away, uh, taken away well, yeah. from him just because he happened not to be leading as he crossed True. the line. But it was obvious just looking at the at the way the race developed that, that there was going to, uh, that by the time if it had run its full length, uh, then Juan Mir was the only person who was going to win that race. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. There's a guy who is clearly smart, seems to have it just all worked out, you know, at, at the tender age of 20. Yeah. He knows he knows what is important. You know, he, he got his first pole position of the year in uh, at Sepang and he was kind of joking about that. You know, he, that, and it, it's clear from, I think, that stat that Joanne hasn't, you know, been chasing the fast lap times. He's yeah. been constantly thinking about just, okay, am I going to be strong on used tyres? using free practice for the right means, you know, not chasing a toe, not being silly like we see with, with some of the antics in, in the junior class. Um, so, yeah, he's been uh, he's been head and shoulders above the rest. 
Yeah, um, and also that that that, uh, that bodes well for Moto Two when he goes up, because yeah. you know you know Moto Three a lot of qualifying really is about being able to get a toe and all the rest of it, and to an extent the race as well. It's about positioning yourself, whereas Moto Two is much more about uh, managing tires, managing tire wear, and managing the bike through uh, uh, through a race. So sure. yeah, that's uh, it, it's really going to be interesting to see how he develops. He could be one of these riders who really seems to uh, develop quite quickly. Yeah, um, and you know Brad Binder was. I'm not taking anything away from Brad. He was sensational in 2016 in Moto3, um, you know, as dominant as uh, as Joanne. But I think Brad had something like four years' experience before his championship campaign. And this is only Joanne's second year in Moto3, which yeah. I think makes it all the more impressive. Um, yeah, I think there was a stat as well that um, only Rossi has won more Grand Prix with this much GP experience. You know, so... Uh, at this stage in his Grand Prix career, uh, Joanne has won, you know, a higher percentage of races than Marquez had yep. or Lorenzo had at that stage, you know. So he's uh, he's been tearing it up. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. As people of his age say. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, Romano Fanati put up a put up a decent fight, but um, uh, had a brilliant win in um, uh, in Motegi, but um, you know. He really came to uh, he came to Phillip Island knowing that it was just about you know it was just about over. Yeah, exactly. You know, a good season all in all from Fanati. Um, yeah, he has had some great high points. He's won more races, I think, than he ever has yeah. in a in a season. Uh, he's had more podiums than he's ever had in a season before. Um, there's maybe been a few anonymous races, but. The consistency has definitely been a lot better than it was in previous years. Um, exactly, and, and uh, Jorge Martin, we have to mention him. He's had a really, really good season. You know, bro- yes. broke his leg. If he hadn't broke his leg, the the championship I think would have been a lot closer. It's been, sure. it's definitely been a, uh, it's definitely been a good, uh, a, a good season to to be watching racing. Yeah, and if I had a crisp uh, ten euro note in my pocket right now, uh, as I don't have, sadly, uh, <laughs> it would be going on Jorge Martin to be the the champion next year. I think he has uh, all the attributes to. Um, to uh, to be a future world champion in, yeah. in the Moto three class. Well, yeah, I definitely think there is a lot of truth to that. But I'm certainly intrigued to see that Darren Binder is going to be on the KTM next year. Darren has shown flashes of all sorts of things, and if he can be as um, uh, you know, if he can be sort of as, as, as solid as his brother, as a, you know, calm down a bit, then uh, I think he can be a bit special as well. So it's going to be uh, again, but Moto Three is brilliant every year. It doesn't really make any difference. <laughs> agreed, agreed. Yeah, throw, you know, Bastianini, uh, throw um, who else? Bastianini, Digia, 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 Digia in there. You know, it's going to be it's going to be the usual fun and games. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and we don't know who's coming in uh, from from the CEV to um, or from uh, from outside. There's about to be. Um, oh yeah, Dennis Podger, the the junior world championship yeah. uh, champion. Um, yeah, he'll be lining up in Sky's team with uh, with Bulliger. Um, and then also the guy that will be partnering Kanet. There's another name to watch out for next year. Absolutely, Kanet has been fantastic as well. Yeah, um, yeah, I think. They haven't confirmed that team, the Australia Galicia team, but it's going to be one of their junior world championship riders. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they usually know a thing or two about uh, selecting young men. Yes, they're not too bad. So, uh, so that should be interesting too. Yeah, exactly right. It's that time again. Um, uh, winners and losers. I think winners over the flyaways. Tell me, tell me, who do you think really comes out of the flyaways as the biggest winner? 
Well, you could you could make a point for Davizioso because what he did in Mategi and in Sepang was uh, exceptional. But he had that off weekend. Um, what Marquez has done managing the championship and also just riding excellently has been superb. But the person that really caught my eye was uh, Johan Zarco um, because he was just fantastic in all three weekends. And in two of those weekends, he you know quite comprehensively outperformed Valentino Rossi and Maverick Vinales. And then Philip Allen took the fight with both of those guys all the way down to the wire. Was so unlucky to miss a podium there. Um, yeah, and it's 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 not just the results. It's just Zarco's means of doing it that's so impressive. You know, he's just, you know, he gets criticised by Lorenzo and Imategi for being a bit rough, um, a bit too aggressive on the on the first lap uh, in the Japanese Grand Prix. What does he do? Does he shy away from a bit of you know fair and bash and a bit of conflict? Absolutely not. He does the exact opposite, and he goes out in Phillip Island as if he's you know intent on roughing up as many big names as he, he possibly can. Yeah. Um, and I just love his, his kind of attitude, you know, after the race of Philip Island. He could have been down, he could have been a bit pissed off that he missed the, the podium, but he just said it was a, you know, a, a lesson. Um, he said he's, you know, it was one of the best experiences of his life being able to fight with, you know, some of the best riders in the world over that period of the race. Um, so, yeah. Not for the first time this year, Zarco for me was the big winner from uh, these flyaways. Yeah, I mean that's that's absolutely a, a very good shout because he really has been sensational. Well, all year and certainly during the flyaways. Um, I think uh, for me, I am going to go with Suzuki just to mix things up, mainly because we had such poor expectations of them, and yet they came away from the flyaways. I mean, you know, the the worst race really was in. Um, uh, uh, was it Sepang, but Japan and Australia, they had really good uh, results and they showed potential. And after what has been a really, really difficult season, they needed to have, um, you know, that, that they, they needed to show some potential. They needed to show that, um, uh, that they're going somewhere. So I think for me, uh, uh, Suzuki come away not as... Um, the sort of under the radar winners, if you if you know what I mean, you know the the, the moral victors of the of the of the triple header. Okay, yeah, good choice, good choice, definitely. Yep. Um, what about what about your loser, sir? Who would you say? My loser. That's actually um, that is actually a uh, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> Well, I'll I'll lead the way. I'll say that uh, Tom Ludy was uh, was my big loser because I yeah. fully expected him to to excel, uh, especially in Japan. He's normally great there. Um, Philip Island was a bit unsure. I expected him to be fighting with Franco all race, and then in Sepang, he's he's got a really good record in Sepang, and uh, he was he was nowhere in all in all three really. Um, yeah, yeah, and that you know. As we mentioned previously, uh, his title challenge just petered out, which was a real disappointment because I thought with with his kind of experience, with the motivation, MotoGP just ahead, he would have done a little bit better. But, um, you know, uh, I'm not particularly having to go at Tom, um, per se. I'm just saying that uh, it was, yeah, that was, yeah. Uh, it was a bit of a letdown. I was a bit disappointed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he really could have, um, he really could have. Uh, I mean, it was his opportunity to uh, to to make a real fight of it, and it really fell apart in Japan from there. It's um, uh, it, and you know the the big crashes in in Philippines. There's not a lot he can do about that. But um, uh, uh, from that point on, it was it was completely long. That's a that's a good shout. I think I'm going to go with um, uh, with Yamaha uh, with uh, uh, Yamaha Movistar Yamaha, the factory Yamahas, because despite having a fantastic race in um, uh, in Australia at Phillip Islands. 
I think what was really exposed is the just the weakness of the bike that the bike really needs. Um, uh, it, it's in real trouble in certain key areas, and they really, really need to fix that sort of you know soon. If uh, either Maverick or Valentino are going to stand a chance of of actually fighting for a title, because as the bike stands now, it's obvious that you know they can win races, but there's no way they can fight for a championship because there are going to be there are going to be you know several races a year where they end up finishing tenth, and you don't win a championship by finishing tenth, which is exactly what we're seeing with Andrea Dovizioso, who's had an absolutely outstanding championship, uh, and yet it's going to be you know a couple of sort of eighth and 11th and 13th places which are going to cost him the title in the end mm. and let's face it if you're wanting to be Mark Marquez over a season you're going to have to be on the podium every single weekend yeah exactly exactly it, 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 to beat Mark Marquez the only way you beat him is through consistency um, you have to I mean you you don't beat Mark Marquez on your good days you beat Mark Marquez on your bad days um, uh, because uh, Mark has so few uh, really bad, uh, uh, really bad days, and when he does, you really have to be able to uh, to capitalise on it and, um, and limit your damages when you can't uh, when you can't inflict any. So yeah, that's that, that's that, that's to me that's uh, to, to me. I think Yamaha have uh, um, they've had their they've had their weakness exposed and their problems exposed quite quite harshly by uh, 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 Mategi and Sapang. And and let me just pose you a question because this is something I've been wondering: Has there been a time before when a satellite bike has so comprehensively outperformed its factory, you know, its factory colleague, let's say, uh, as consistently as Zarco has done this year. And, um, I'm, and I'm not limiting that, limiting that to Yamaha, but to, to Honda or to Ducati, because sure, there's been instances in previous years where, say, a tech trial rider has been really strong, like Crutchlow or Davizioso has been fighting with the with the, the factory guys, but haven't regularly been beating them. And it's the same with Honda. I'm trying to think of, of I guess, perhaps with, uh, you'd be going back to Sete, really, wouldn't you? Like with uh, Gibbonoy uh, or, well, or Marco yes, Melandri, yeah, perhaps. I mean, yeah, you would be going back to sort of the pre-800 days when, um, uh, yeah. when the Grassini bikes and to an extent, the Ponce bikes were pretty much on a level with um, uh, uh, with with the factory bikes. But again, I, I, I think there. You, I mean, in the end, it comes down to the rider. Why are the, why is Tech Three outperforming Movistar Yamaha? Not just because of because of the the difference between the 2016 and 2017 M1. Just because Joan Zarco is just a really really good rider. Um, and if you if, again, if you go back to sort of the Gibbonau days when Gibbonau was was on the uh, on the Grassini bike, you know he was having a good time. He was having a good season because he was on the not because he was on the on the Grassini bike. He was having a good season because he was having um, just because you know he was good enough to actually challenge for the challenge for the championship. Uh, he got the backing from the factory, and um, uh, and he was he was just good enough. It was it, it was as simple as that. And if you look at the people who were on the Repsol uh, bikes at the time, I mean, you know, uh, Biaggi, no doubting Biaggi's talents, but uh, he just never uh, he never had the support in that team. He never really had the uh, the, the backing in that team, and. Um, yeah, um, it's, uh, in the end, I think it comes down to the rider. That's 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 my answer. Absolutely right. Well, thank you very much. That's it for this episode. Um, we shall uh, do something at Valencia, I suspect. 
I suspect we will. Yeah, exactly. We'll be hanging around for a few days after uh, the race finishes. We'll be there for the, the first official test of uh, MotoGP 2018. Yes. Which promises to be interesting as it always is yeah i mean no it's not going to be the kind of cracker that um uh, that it was last year or that we're hoping for in 2019 but there's going to be lots and lots of things to see and to learn and no idea what uk is going to be running out there actually that's a good question but um uh, i don't think they'll have the 2017 uh, 2018 bike i think uh Gigi Delinia confirmed to one of the, the Italian outlets, it might have been GP1, that uh, the first sighting of the, the, the GP18 will be at Sepang next February. That reminds me, I should book some flights. Um, right, well, anyway, thank you very much, uh, Neil. Um, uh, Thanks, Dave. I would like to thank you, dear listener, for listening to us. And I would like to remind you to uh, follow us on the Twitter, which is at Paddock Pass Pod, uh, Facebook. Uh, facebook.com slash podcast and uh, do remember to leave us a uh, five star rating and a, a review raving about how just absolutely amazing we are uh, on the iTunes uh, or and or any other podcatch style uh, services you use to actually follow the show thanks again for listening and see you soon Oh, yeah, down with the boys. Yeah. Not everyone can say Brad Pitt reads my work. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure Brad Pitt does read my work. It'd be nice if Brad Pitt did. If you're listening to this, Brad Pitt, give me some fucking money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, enough with all that fucking id release that you do. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Pour it into fucking my website, would you? Exactly, exactly.